0: Just a quick update before we jump into our next episode. Thanks to Audible, you can get a free audiobook just for being a listener of our show. In the spirit of transparency, we receive a kickback for everyone who signs up, but the author or the publisher does not sponsor me. I only recommend books that I have personally read or listened to. At the end of this episode, I'll drop my suggestion, but don't feel obligated to select my recommendation. This offer opens the door to any of the tens of thousands of audiobooks offered by Audible. And regardless of your decision to continue your membership, this book is yours to keep, forever. Visit audibletrial.com slash marinehistory for a free audiobook and a free 30-day trial. Now on to the show. Welcome to Episode 115 of History of the Marine Corps, Guadalcanal and Tulagi, Part 2. The main assault on Tulagi forced the Marines to overcome natural obstacles. The coral beds and steep wooded slopes introduce the Marines to the rugged battlefield they're about to face. We get into the weeds a bit, and troop movements can be a bit tricky to follow. I'll add maps on our social media pages and on the episode page of our website to make things a little easier to picture. This episode goes into the planning that went into the operation, beginning with the early morning approach of the transport group Yoke, the bombardment of enemy positions by support aircraft and naval gunfire, and as the Marines land, we cover the moves of the 1st Marine Raider Battalion and the 2nd Battalion 5th Marines, highlighting their advancement across the island's ridge and their engagements with enemy forces. Thanks for joining. Now let's talk about the history of the Marine Corps. Transport Group Yoke, commanded by Captain Ash, separated from the main fleet at 2.40 in the morning and approached Tulagi without any resistance. Besides formation issues, where the transports could not keep closed up, the advancement was relatively error-free, and all ships were in position by 6.30, 90 minutes before H-hour. While the transport vessels were en route, support aircraft began strafing and bombing at 6.14 targeting enemy seaplanes that were, quote, caught like sitting ducks. Naval gunfire support commenced at 727, with several ships, including the destroyer Monson and the anti-aircraft cruiser San Juan, both bombarding different targets. 60 rounds were expended by the destroyer in the first five minutes. At the same time, The Buchanan and the San Juan were pumping 100 rounds each into other nearby targets. The first landing was executed 20 minutes before H-hour. Bravo Company of the 2nd Marines landed near Halida. They were unopposed and achieved their objective within 40 minutes. The main assault on Tulagi started exactly at 0800. 252 Marines went ashore in 8 landing boats and they were guarded to their target by one of the many Australians on duty with the division. Tulagi, a long, narrow, and hilly island with a prominent ridge and surrounding coral beds, was a huge challenge for transport vessels. The western coast was chosen as the landing zone, despite being bordered by coral reefs. Although the landing was unopposed, the terrain was a challenge. Marines faced extensive coral beds surrounding Tulagi, and the only suitable beaches were limited to the eastern and southern coasts. Both of these spots were overshadowed by high terrain, which complicated any assault. There were a couple of documents, including a letter from Lt. Col. Thorpe to the Commandant, and the final report, Phase 2, highlighted these concerns. The decision was eventually made to land on the western coast, about 2,000 yards south of the northwestern tip, near a small, local cemetery. A Marine Corps map used in the planning process showed the shoreline in this area heavily encrusted with coral. A note on the map stated, quote, Bordered with coral reefs. Due to uncertain tides, landing not practical except for amphibian tanks or rubber boats, unquote. This reflected the difficulties and limitations in selecting a landing site. The enemy probably shared our view on the beach's features, since there was very little resistance. The first casualty of the battle wasn't caused by the enemy. There was a Marine in the intelligence section of the 1st Raider Battalion, and he suffered a fatal wound from an accidental discharge while on board the ship Little. His body was brought to shore for burial. The complicated terrain resulted in every landing craft failing to reach the beach. The Marines waded to shore, some from 30 yards out and others from well over 100. Marines waded ashore in waters up to their armpits. When the Marines started to land, Japanese forces at Tulagi understood they were not facing a simple raid, but a full-scale invasion they informed Rabao that their position was facing heavy bombardment and that troops were starting to land. As a result, they were initiating the destruction of their equipment due to the dire circumstances. At H hour, they broadcasted that artillery was striking close to the radio station and 10 minutes later, they sent out their last grim message, quote, Enemy troop strength is overwhelming. We will defend to the last man, unquote. The 1st Marine Raider Battalion, commanded by Lieutenant Colonel Merritt A. Edson, and the 2nd Battalion, 5th Marines, were the primary units involved in the Tulagi landing. The boats that were carrying Alpha and Charlie Company encountered difficulties with the coral reefs. The territory just beyond the landing zone formed the Marines' tactical approach. Once they left the narrow beach, they quickly faced dense vegetation and were met by a steep, wooded coral incline. This was part of a significant ridge that extended the island's length, rising to 350 feet at some points and presenting an almost continuous barrier. Bravo and Delta Companies progressed over this ridge. Bravo Company descended the far side and took control of Sasepe, a small, indigenous village on the island's other side they met no resistance. They repositioned to the right and prepared to advance southeastward. At the same time, Delta Company made an immediate right after cresting the ridge and prepared to push forward, aligning its right flank with its peak. Throughout the day the formation held, Delta Company advanced with its right flank along the ridgetop and left flank in touch with Bravo Company, which was staggered behind on the left, with its left flank brushing against the water's edge. The two companies moved forward consistently and unchallenged until Bravo Company arrived at Carpenter's Wharf, on the island's eastern side. It was here, halfway along the shore, that they finally ran into a string of enemy outposts. Meanwhile, the rest of the raider battalion had successfully landed. Colonel Edson's arrival on shore was delayed due to a malfunction in his transport boat, but he joined the operations as the Marines descended from the ridge. Alpha and Charlie Company, who represented the second wave, navigated the coral maze and quickly landed after the first wave. Echo Company was not far behind them and carried 60 millimeter mortars distributed among the rifle companies. Once on shore, all three companies advanced to meet up with the first wave. Alpha Company traced the route of the leading units and veered right after reaching the ridge top, linking with Delta Company's left flank. With its right side brushing against the shore, Charlie Company also turned right, connecting with Alpha Company's right flank. Echo Company stayed at Beach Blue to ensure the security of the landing. Alpha and Charlie also faced no resistance as they headed towards their destination. They reached Phase Line A around 1120. Now, a Phase Line is just a control measure used to coordinate and control the movement of troops. It's essentially an imaginary line or an identifiable terrain feature that units can reference. Phase Line A was at the end of the ridge. By then, Colonel Edson had joined his troops, and the Marines were in position to initiate an offensive to the southeast. But to get there, they had to travel through a more densely developed part of the island. Historically, this was the hub of British administration in the Solomon Islands. This sector nestled in a depression between the island's two prominent ridges, the larger one the raiders had just cleared to the northwest, and a smaller, rugged elevation at the island's southeastern tip. Until now, radio communication between Colonel Edson and Brigadier General William A. Rupertus had been flawless. Encounters along the ridge were sporadic and not intense. However, there were several isolated Japanese soldiers that were not spotted during the advance. The initial phases of the battle had been so favorable that the air group commander, operating from the USS Wasp, reported from above that Marines were visible across Tulagi. His reports mistakenly indicated an absence of enemy resistance. All battalion weapons, except for the machine guns of Echo Company, which remained at Beach Blue, coordinated fire upon the next objective, the saddle and the hills beyond. Despite the heavy firing, the effects on the enemy were unknown. Communications between Rupertus and Edson started to fail once the Raiders hit the phase line. From this point on, Rupertus was only aware that the advance continued, but was out of the loop regarding the finer details. The first significant opposition was met just as the troops began to push forward. In front of Charlie Company, at the far right, was a distinct elevation. This was Hill 208. As Charlie Company's right flank started to maneuver past the hill's seaside base, they were met with fire from Japanese automatic weapons and rifles positioned on the hill. The conflict continued to get stronger. Enemy engagement continued to increase, and it took Charlie Company roughly an hour of combat with rifles and grenades to neutralize the enemy forces on the hill. While Charlie Company was engaged on Hill 208, the rest of Edson's forces were encountering oppositions as well. Edson called for naval gunfire on Hill 281, the southeastern ridge, which was delivered by the San Juan with a heavy concentration of shells. By late afternoon, Edson reported that around 500 enemy troops had disengaged and retreated towards Hill 281. The advance of Edson's forces continued slowly until evening. Echo Company joined its unit after another battalion took over beachhead security. Delta Company had a relatively quiet afternoon, and they didn't meet any resistance since the morning and were able to advance to the ridge of Hill 281. Bravo Company, who were operating to the right of Delta Company, moved without issue as well. However, Bravo and Delta companies lost contact with each other at dusk and both took a position overseeing a critical cross-island roadway. They set up listening posts ahead of their positions for night security. Alpha and Charlie faced significant resistance in a deep, steep ravine on the northwest slope of Hill 281. The enemy was well positioned within the ravine, making a direct assault through its mouth highly dangerous. Captured maps indicated that this ravine was expected to be a stronghold of the enemy defense. The battalion positioned itself for the night, unable to continue immediate action against a well-defended enemy pocket. Meanwhile, 2-5 had landed earlier in the day to sweep the northwest part of Tulagi, which had yet to be addressed. This battalion consisted of 1,085 marines and they set up its command post west of Beach Blue, preparing for its mission on the island. The battalion was assigned to various roles throughout the operation. Fox Company swept the northwest section of the island and encountered no resistance. Two Fives Echo Company was tasked with supporting the Raiders Bravo Company. The Weapons Platoon of Hotel Company was sent to help the Raiders Charlie Company in their assault on Hill 208. By 1300, as the Raider Battalion advanced from Phase Line A, George Company was instructed to follow the Ridgeline Trail and join Edson's Raiders for support. The command post of Rosecrans Battalion was initially at Beach Blue, but later moved southeast, closer to where the Raider Battalion was engaging the enemy. During the first night on Tulagi, the Japanese initiated four separate attacks on the Marine Raiders' positions achieving minor breaches, but failing to exploit or consolidate these gains. This approach would become characteristic of their tactics throughout the Pacific War. By nightfall, the Marines were positioned on high ground around a challenging ravine, with one platoon of Charlie Company cut off but secure on the island's southeastern tip. Delta was stretched thin but unthreatened, and Bravo, Echo, Alpha, and Charlie were organized from left to right, with Charlie anchoring the right flanks on the beach. These units were positioned on a ridge overlooking enemy-held territory, with listening posts set up ahead of their lines. The Raider Battalion command post was established near Echo Company Sector at the former British residency in town. The remaining 2-5 Marines were positioned behind the Raider Battalion. During the night, The first successful enemy attack occurred between Charlie and Alpha, temporarily forcing them apart and isolating Charlie Company. Alpha Company managed to hold its position, despite the enemy's efforts to breach it, resulting in 26 enemy soldiers killed close to their line. Subsequent enemy attacks involved quiet infiltration attempts, with individuals and small groups from the ravine making several failed efforts to penetrate the Marines' command post at the residency and attempting to bypass the Marines' flanks. By the morning of August 8th, Echo and Fox from 2-5 joined to help sweep the southwestern part of the island. They began their movement from the northeast of Hill 281 and then moved towards the enemy stronghold in the ravine. The terrain feature, where the enemy was dug in, was effectively surrounded allowing the Marines to unleash a barrage of mortar fire. The final assault began at 1500, with the Raiders and 2-5 Golf Company clearing the ravine of the enemy. Although some isolated Japanese soldiers continued to be a nuisance over the following days, organized resistance ended with this assault. By the evening of August 8th, Tulagi had been secured by American forces. The assault plan for the landings on the closely situated islets of Gavatu and Tanambogo involved using the military principle that higher ground offers a tactical advantage. The hill on Tanambogo was 121 feet tall. On Gavatu, it was 148 feet, hence the name of the hill, 148. The slightly higher hill on Gavatu would be the initial focus to gain the upper hand. The strategy was to land on Gavatu's northeast coast with the approach from the east. The Marines were mindful of potential flanking fire from the enemy forces on Tanambogo due to its location a 1,000 yards away and its elevation. The operation was designated to two companies from the Parachute Battalion, with a third held in reserve. The order of landing was for Alpha Company to attack the North Face and Bravo Company the southeast face of Hill 148, while Charlie Company would land last. Charlie's company objective was to set up north of the beach to mitigate flanking fire from Tanambogo and aid the assault on Gavatu. Once Gavatu was taken, Charlie Company would embark ships, cross over the waterway, and capture Tanambogo. Naval gunfire and close in aerial support from SBD dive bombers from the carrier Wasp, were planned to neutralize enemy positions on the hills during the assault on Gavatu and Tanambogo. However, the effectiveness of artillery was limited to its range and ability to hit visible targets. Enemy forces concealed from enemy fire would be shielded from these attacks. The dive bombers were expected to target these harder-to-reach positions, but despite these plans, a significant obstacle became clear. The Coral Cave which would prove to be a persistent challenge for the next two years of the war. The parachute battalion was considerably smaller than a rifle regiment, with only a total of 351 men equipped with various firearms and light weapons. These Marines lost the element of surprise, since the assault was already going on and the enemy was alerted and ready. The battalion hit the beach in three groups, with each company arriving in its own wave. Support from the ship San Juan was intense. 280 rounds of heavy artillery was launched in just four minutes. This attack rocked the enemy base hard, but the thorough bombardment was a double-edged sword. It turned the seaplane ramp, which was the intended landing spot, into a heap of debris, making it unusable. This forced Marines to land further north than planned. Putting them in the line of enemy fire. General Vandergrift estimated a 10% loss in this rough landing. Alpha Company landed on Gava 2 without initial casualties and advanced inland with little resistance. But Bravo Company, arriving four minutes later, and Charlie, following seven minutes after Bravo, came under immediate enemy fire during their approach and landing. Bravo Company moved left towards the island's southern end, as an attempt to gain some cover from most of the enemy fire coming from Hill 148 and Tanambogo. Enemy fire heavily suppressed the remaining companies, which stalled their movement. Within 20 minutes of the landing, Major Robert H. Williams was wounded and command was transferred to Major Charles A. Miller. Movement for these companies was stopped, until Bravo Company could provide supporting fire with small arms and mortars. By 1430, the battalion had secured most of Gavatu, including assaults on the east and southeast sides of Hill 148, with naval gunfire support reducing enemy resistance. However, enemy resistance was still brutal. This was a big problem for the Marines, and it caused massive casualties and stopped their movement. Major Miller realized that he had to take Tanambogo. strikes and naval gunfire targeted Tanambogo, and General Rupertus committed all available forces to this mission. The 1st Raider Battalion and elements of the 2nd Battalion 5th Marines were engaging enemies on Tulagi, and other Marine units were conducting their missions nearby. 2 Bravo Company, was redirected from a no-contact position to support Miller on Gavatu. They loaded onto six overcrowded landing crafts and were ordered by Major Miller to seize Tanambogo. They were expecting to face only a few snipers. The landing started under the guidance of Lieutenant Spencer of the Royal Australian Air Force. They aimed for a small pier on the northeastern tip of Tanambogo. One of the boats got stuck in the coral and couldn't participate in the landing. The first boat landed without trouble, but as the second boat began to unload, a shell hit a nearby fuel dump. The fire lit up the area, revealing the Marines to the enemy. Every boat was exposed and began getting shot with rifle and machine gun fire. The Marines, both onshore and aboard the boats, suffered many casualties particularly the boat crews, who were completely exposed. One boat crew was completely wiped out, and a Marine had to step in to keep their ship going. The 4th Machine Gun Platoon, from Delta Company, managed to set up two guns on the pier, but the heavy enemy fire and the vulnerability due to the illumination from the fire forced them to withdraw. During this heavy resistance, There were about 30 men who made it to Tanambogo, but they had to withdraw. They boarded their wounded and came back with only 12 able bodied survivors. Some of the boats retreated to Gavatu, while others went directly to the ships to tend to the injured. Two men from those left behind on the beach made it back to Gavatu around 10 p.m. in a rowboat. The remaining Marines managed to navigate around the beach and over a causeway, reaching Miller's command post around midnight. Even after dark, the battle continued with Japanese forces receiving reinforcements who swam from nearby islands. A counterattack was launched from a cave. Marines repelled the assault and eliminated the entire group. Other Japanese forces attacked the island under the cover of heavy rain causing some casualties but not inflicting enough damage that would alter the control the parachute battalion had over the island. Upon learning about the failed assault on Tanambogo, General Rupertus requested additional combat teams. Vandergriff released the last two battalions of the Division Reserve after Admiral Turner's agreement. At 03.30 on August 8th, the USS President Hayes and the President Adams, with the 2nd and 3rd Battalions, 2nd Marines embarked, were ordered to move to the Tulagi area. These battalions were instructed to land at Beach Blue and report to General Rupertus. Four hours later, 3rd Battalion, 2nd Marines were ordered to reinforce Gabutu and seize Tanambogo, while the 1st Battalion's orders remained unchanged. The 3rd Battalion, led by Lt. Col. Hunt, began landing in waves spaced 10 minutes apart, with Lima and India Company landing at 10 a.m., followed by Kilo and the remaining Marines from India at 10.25. Tanks landed on Gavatu and were ordered to advance towards Tanambogo. Naval gunfire started at 1,600 to support the tanks, and 20 minutes later, their assault began. The tanks provided significant support to the riflemen. There was one tank that was disabled and set on fire by the enemy with oil-soaked rags, but the riflemen eliminated the threat, with 42 enemy bodies found around the disabled tank. India Company landed at 4.20 p.m. and split into two groups, one attacking the southern slope and the other the hill's eastern slope facing intense enemy resistance from dugouts and caves. They also encountered enemy fire from the nearby small island of Mi, which was silenced by additional naval gunfire shortly after. The 1st Platoon of Kilo Company launched a supporting attack across the causeway, securing the Tanambogo end and setting up positions for the night. India Company received ammunition supplies at 1900, and two hours later, secured the southeastern part of Tanambogo. A machine gun platoon was sent to their position to defend against counterattacks. Throughout the night, close quarter combats ensued with no significant changes in position, and by the end of the next day, the Marines fully secured the island. As the 3rd Battalion, 2nd Marines were wrapping up operations on Gavutu and securing Tanambogo, The other two regiment battalions, along with some supporting units, were landing on Tulagi. In addition to the reinforcements, amphibious tractors were brought in as well, and they proved to be invaluable during these operations for their versatility. Throughout the afternoon and into the night of August 8th, five amphibious tractors from 3rd Platoon Alpha Company of the 2nd Amphibian Tractor Battalion reinforced the 2nd Marines they shuttled between Gavutu and the transport ship President Adams and transported water, supplies, ammunition, and personnel to shore and evacuated the wounded on the return trips. One tractor notably provided cover and evacuated wounded Marines from a dangerous situation under enemy fire. By the evening of August 9th, the tractors had completed their missions and returned to the President Adams. With Tanambogo secured, organized resistance on the island group ceased, shifting focus to mop up operations and establishing defenses. Gao Mi had already been silenced by the Marine artillery on August 9th. Units from the 2nd Battalion 2nd Marines were assigned to clear these smaller islands. Echo Company took Macombo. Fox Company dealt with slight opposition in Umbangai. Golf Company encountered minor resistance and secured the remaining two. All these islands were occupied on the morning of August 9th. The entire island group, including Tulagi and its satellites, was secured in three days. Most of the enemy was eliminated with a few escaping to Florida Island, where they were captured or killed. American losses were considered moderate compared to the size and outcome of the operation. The precise enemy casualties are unknown, but an estimated 1,500 were on the island, with 23 taken prisoner, and 70 believed to have fled to Florida. After the conflict, Tulagi and the satellites were fortified against potential counterattacks. The parachute battalion, having suffered significant casualties, were relocated to Tulagi. Marines from 2-5 and two battalions of the 2nd Marines took over the defense of different sectors, while the 3rd Battalion 2nd Marines held Gavatu, Tanambogo, and Macambo. The logistical situation on Tulagi were the same as the challenges faced on Guadalcanal, but had unique complexities due to the terrain. The beachhead on Tulagi was constrained, and there weren't any functional roads, it wasn't until the afternoon of the second day that supplies could be moved in. Gavatu had effectively no beachhead at all. This limited landings to only ammunition and water until the islands were fully secured. The overall supply issues are highlighted by the comments of officers who were fighting these battles. Quote, Echo Company 2-5 landed with three days' rations and received nothing but captured rice, and one one-gallon can of tomatoes from August 7th until August 21st when we were transferred to Guadalcanal by APD. One meal per day from August 11th on. The Parachute Battalion landed on Gavatu with weapons, ammunition, medical supplies, and two or three days supply rations. Before embarking in landing craft, each individual made up a role which consisted of clothing, mess gear, necessary comforts of life, and field bedding. These rolls, together with vital organizational equipment, were loaded in landing craft. Almost all thus rolls, with most equipment, were never received, thus causing undue hardship and inconvenience after the parachute battalion moved to Tulagi, There was another officer who blames the failure of the rolls and equipment being delivered to a logistical mishap. Quote, an air raid warning occurred as the boats loaded with the packs were almost to the beach, and without allowing them to proceed and unload, they were recalled to the ship, and coxswains ordered to throw the gear over the side to lighten them sufficiently for cranes to swing them aboard. Unquote. The Tulagi area, having quieted down after the first three days of engagement, was largely ignored by enemy aircraft, which focused instead on the more strategic targets on Guadalcanal. Although it was shelled occasionally by enemy surface craft, Tulagi did not experience the intense bombardment that Guadalcanal did in October. There are no records of the enemy landing forces on Tulagi or the nearby Florida island after securing it. The island subsequently functioned as a base for mounting key patrol actions during the campaign, including missions to Savo Island, Malaita, and Guadalcanal itself. Large quantities of Japanese materials and documents were found there, some of which, including food, engineering, and radio equipment, were immediately used by the American forces. We covered a lot during this episode, so let me just break it down and give you a a quick summary. Transport Group Yoke, under Captain Ash's command, broke from formation and headed towards Tulagi we tracked the journey of the 1st Marine Raider Battalion and the 2nd Battalion 5th Marines as they tackled the rugged and dense terrain of Tulagi, which was marked by steep coral slopes and high ridges. As the Marines moved further inland, the intense combat faced by Charlie Company on Hill 208 marked the beginning of significant resistance. Marines had to deal with the complexities of night operations, Japanese counterattacks, and their own tactical defensive positioning. As the Marines progressed, they focused on the nearby smaller islands. The threats on these islands forced the Marines to evaluate their strategy, and they faced, for the first time, the challenges of the coral caves. The parachute battalion faced fierce resistance during the assault, and the 2nd and 3rd battalions of the 2nd Marines came in to help the Battle of Tulagi and the surrounding islands only took a couple of days. Once secured, the Marines mopped up operations on the smaller islands and established fortifications on Tulagi and its satellite islands. Thanks for listening. This episode's audiobook is The Status Game by Will Storr. This book is about the fundamental human pursuit of status in society. Storr suggests that our social lives are essentially a game aimed at gaining and maintaining status. The drive for this status is not only natural, but also deeply ingrained in our psyche, influencing our happiness, health, and even depression when we lack it. Now, what I personally enjoyed about this book was how it was able to make sense of our current culture. The book dives into why faith often takes precedence over trust and why ideology can overpower scientific reasoning. He also examines how beliefs can transform into status symbols and the dangerous link between the pursuit of status and the loss of morality, even leading to extremes such as genocide. Central to the author's thesis is the idea that status is about power and influence, and the book is filled with a variety of stories that illustrate Store's points. It's a fascinating book that provides some insights on what's going on today. If you like what you're hearing, check out historyofthemarinecorps.com. Here you can subscribe to our newsletter, find out more information about each show, and look at references used for each episode. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at Marine History, and on Instagram at History of the Marines. If you're enjoying the podcast, tell a friend. We count on listeners like you to share, and any help would be greatly appreciated. If you don't like what you hear, please contact us through historyofthemarinecore.com and tell us why. I'm always looking for ways to improve. Thanks for listening, and Semper Fi.